Hey, we haven't been uh, with each other for a few weeks on Wednesday because of the holiday. And uh, so I'd like to have you turn to chapter one. We're just going to start over. <laughs> now, Book of Romans, chapter three. I will review just briefly, though. And I mean briefly, so don't worry about that. But tonight we find ourselves at the end of the first major section of the book of Romans, a section that we've called Condemnation, which runs from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. And as we have previously said, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, constitutes Paul's closing arguments in his case for the guilt of all human beings in the sight of Almighty God. As we have also previously said, the theme of Romans is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul states that pretty quickly right up front, chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. But before Paul can give the good news, he first has to present the bad news. In other words, before people will see their need for a Savior, they first have to understand that they're sinners. And that's what he's doing. Paul's the quintessential evangelist. I mean, the Spirit of God really... Uh, anointed him to reach people for Jesus. And Paul knew that there's a lot of folks out there that think they're pretty good. They think they're, you know, he was a Pharisee. He was one of them at one time. And Paul knew from experience, there's a lot of folks out there that thought they were good people. They deserved heaven. Eh, not perfect, but good enough to make it, you know, and uh, maybe they needed a little push from God to get over the, the wall. But, you know, they were basically on their way to glory. And Paul wants them to understand, no, 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 Jesus didn't come to save good people. He came to save lost sinners. And so he wants to establish that fact before he gives them the gospel. And so that's what we're studying right now. We should finish tonight the first major section. But as we have said repeatedly in this first section of the book, Paul is making his case that the whole world apart from Jesus Christ and his payment for our sins on Calvary's cross is condemned to spend eternity apart from God in hell. Now, Paul calls the final witness for the prosecution to the stand, the prosecution against mankind, fallen man. He calls the final witness for the prosecution to the stand, God himself. And in verses 10 to 18, what we have amounts to a 14-count indictment uh, against the human race uh, by God right out of his word. So let's read verses 10 to 18 one more time. He starts with, as it is written, all of these are, he's quoting scripture. We've tried to point out where as we have gone through these. But as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this 14-count indictment is directed at three primary areas of man's person, 
his character, his conversation, and then his conduct. Now, we've already looked at character and conversation, which uh, covered the first 10 indictments, verses 10 to 14, which now brings us to God's condemnation of man's conduct. So indictment number 11, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. He's quoting Proverbs 1, verse 16, and Isaiah 59, verse 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood. I don't have to tell you, but man is a murderer. Man is a murderer. He kills his own kind more than any other species. In fact, in the USA since 1900, people in America have killed, listen, three times as many people in private acts of violence as have died in all the wars we have fought in our nation's entire history. That's quite a statistic. And that doesn't even take into consideration the 63 million babies that have been killed through abortion. Research has determined that a child born today in any one of the 50 largest cities in America has roughly a 1 in 40 chance of being murdered. Let that sink in. And how have the governors and mayors of blue cities and states responded to all the violence? By doing away with cash bail, defunding the police, and letting criminals go free after they have committed acts of violence, which has only escalated violent crimes and the murder rate. Indictment number 12, verse 16. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Quoting Isaiah 59, verse 7. All you have to do is read or watch the news each night to see the senseless violence going on all around us. Everywhere you look, there is destruction, devastation, and misery caused by the evil and brutality of man, all escalated in the summer of 2020 with the George Floyd riots. Of course, they were mostly peaceful, as reporters told us, as they were standing in front of burning cities. And there are people who live for chaos and turmoil, and violence, and they're always looking for a cause. And so after the George Floyd incident, um, they've moved on now. Uh, we see violent protesters who hate the Jewish people for striking back at Hamas for the brutal and barbaric atrocities they unleashed on peaceful Jews enjoying a concert back on October 7th of 2023 which is incredible um, when you see what Hamas, a terrorist organization, did to innocent people. I don't even want to get into it. It's so horrific what they did that I, I don't even want to mention it. But Jesus foretold that the closer we got to his return, lawlessness would reach epidemic proportions and the love of many would grow cold. Think about abortion for a second. The safest place for a baby to be should be in its mother's womb. I mean, a mother's love for her children is just, it's, it's extraordinary. It's legendary. And to have women, and there's forgiveness. 
I know women who have had abortions before they got saved and then they received Christ. He's washed all that away. So I'm not here to put guilt on or condemnation on anybody. But I'm just saying, as our society in general, the, the safest place for a baby to be should be in its mother's womb. But that's not the case anymore. That's become the most dangerous place in our culture today. But it's not just abortion. When it talks about, you know, how that the love of many would grow cold, Jesus said, the closer we got to his return. Maybe you caught a couple months ago a couple teenagers videoing the whole thing Las Vegas, out joyriding, was seeing bikers biking, you know, in the street, and they saw one guy, and let's hit him, hit him. They just ran him over. He flew over the top of the car. He died. Found out later he was a retired cop. So callous were these two young men. So callous that when they were arrested, the one kid said to the cop, I'm a minor. I'll be out in a day. There's just a coldness, a callousness that is just hard to, hard to fathom. But we see violence in our nation, which is a really a uh, evidence. Something is drastically wrong. God is love. And the closer we are to God as a society, the less there's going to be violence and crime and things like that. What we see in the news every night is just a testimony to how far from God we have, we have fallen as a nation. Well, we see this in the area of domestic violence. Uh, cops will tell you that the most dangerous situation that they get exposed to on a daily basis is domestic violence calls. Domestic violence where wives and children are routinely abused and often killed at the hands of husbands and fathers. The women, they can commit acts of violence too i just saw just i think it was today i was reading it was uh, reading the online news service i read how about a, a mother i forgot where she lived in the states but she killed her two kids they she fled to england they got her they, they're bringing her back but that's not an uncommon thing anymore uh, so we see women who are abusing children and even murdering their own children uh, this has also reached an epidemic thing today. Uh, gun violence is off the charts. As gangs roam our cities and people are being killed for fun or to prove how tough young guys are and they're worthy to be accepted into the gang, they got to go out and murder somebody in cold blood. Uh, or you see um, groups of young guys, three and four, uh, they're, they're, they're holding people up and killing people for a few bucks or even a cell phone. Gun violence, it's really escalating. So the response of our leaders is to try to take away the rights of law-abiding citizen, law citizens to bear arms so that we can protect ourselves and our families. You've got violent crime, gun crime everywhere, so the answer is to take guns away from law-abiding citizens. Now we're sitting ducks. We can't even protect ourselves and our families. In Isaiah, God said, when a nation gets very close to judgment, there's a moral inversion. Good is evil and evil is good. Victims are perpetrators. Perpetrators are victims. It's just how, where we are. It just tells us how close we are to judgment. 
Indictment number 13, verse 17, In the way of peace they have not known. Quoting Isaiah 59, verse 8. Uh, but I've always gravitated to Isaiah 57 with, with regard to this topic. Verses 20 and 21. Talking about the wicked, God said, But those who reject me are like the restless sea, which is never still, but continually churns up mud and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. Guys, man will never have peace within himself or with his fellow man as long as he's at war with God. In fact, that's what salvation is. We lay down our arms, we surrender our lives, and we make peace with God by surrendering our lives to him. Um, Romans 5 verse 1, Paul said, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. It's only when the Prince of Peace fills your heart that you know God's peace. And that kind of overflows onto other people. You don't want to be at war with anyone. You want to live peaceably with all men as much as is possible. right? Paul's going to address that later on in Romans. Sometimes it's not always possible, but that's the goal. As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all people. All right, indictment number 14, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Quoting Psalm 36, verse 1. This final indictment is actually at the heart of man's evil conduct. Or maybe it's the result of it. I'll let you wrestle with that. I think that, though, this... In fact, I have you turned to Psalms, Psalm 36. We will read this one, verses 1 to 4. And again, guys... This is really the heart of where we are as a society. And where, why all the violence? Because there is no fear of God, which means there's no fear of consequences. There's no fear of standing before him on the day of judgment and giving an account. Psalm 36, verse 1. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. When he finds out his iniquity and when he hates, he flatters himself. Wow. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Because he doesn't fear God. Because he doesn't know God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is it? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If you don't hate evil, you don't fear God. And there are those that even lie awake at night on their beds, as the psalmist said, devising more wickedness, how they can scam people or cheat people or, or hurt people to get what they want. Guys, the fear of the Lord is twofold. First of all, it's positive. All right? It can be positive, which is reverential fear. But it can be negative, the fear of punishment or judgment. Now, I'll give you two examples from Scripture. You're kind of in the neighborhood. I'll have you turn to the first one, Romans 14. 
And let's just read verses 10 to 12. I mean, there's so many examples of this. I just wanted to pull two out. Uh, one of reverential fear, the other of fear of judgment. One for the believer, the other for the unbeliever. But Romans 14, verse 10, why do you judge, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now, we're going to stand before Jesus as believers, but it's not going to be a punitive thing. I mean, we're going to, he's going to uh, reveal to us areas that were unpleasing, you know, things that we did do that uh, caused us to forfeit some rewards uh, or didn't do that caused us to forfeit some rewards. You know, opportunities we had to serve him, but that we ignored because we were wanting to do some, something else, okay? So this is not going to be a punitive thing. I'm not saying the judgment seat of Christ for believers is going to be a happy time. Yeah, we'll receive our rewards, but I think there's going to be more tears than shouts of joy because a lot more folks, uh, Christians, have lost rewards because they're not living for God. And uh, the Bible says, you know, many are going to be ashamed at his appearing. Why? I mean, not lost, but ashamed. They're saved by grace. Why are they going to be ashamed? Because they're not living for Jesus. I mean, they go to church, and I'm not saying they're living uh, immoral lives, maybe, but uh, they're definitely not sold out for Jesus. They're kind of, you know, Israel in the wilderness, you know, they're out of Egypt. They're saved, but they never grow past the wilderness, uh, which is a mark of carnality and uh, selfishness and pride and so on. Um, that's the believers. Luke 12. Jesus spoke this to unbelievers. Luke 12, verse 4. But I say to you, it's Jesus talking, but I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, uh, has the power to cast the soul into hell forever. I say to you, fear him. So that is a fear of judgment that um, unbelievers should have, which, if they really have it, will lead them to Christ oftentimes. Look, I'll be honest with you. I got saved because I was terrified to go to hell. I always was afraid to go to hell uh, as a young, young kid. But uh, when I was around 18, uh, we uh, went and saw the movie The Exorcist. Boy, that was a lovely movie, wasn't it? Good Lord in heaven. Well, one thing that movie did do is it scared the H-E-L-L -L out of me. And I came home, and I, was, I, I wasn't really saved, but I grew up in the Catholic Church. I loved the Lord, went to Catholic grade school, and, uh, and was definitely not an atheist. But I came home, and I remember weeping on my bed. God, I don't want to go to hell. God, I don't want to go to hell. Please, Lord. And the Lord answered that prayer by bringing people into my life, they shared the gospel with me. I eventually got saved. But, you know, Jude said, some save with compassion, others save with fear. Oh, should we really scare people into heaven? I don't care what you do to get them into heaven. As long as they come to heaven, that's all we care about. If you have to put your arm around them and, and encourage them into the kingdom or 
hold their feet to the fire, whatever it takes. We, we just want to see them saved. But let me just say this. The fear of consequences has historically been what our entire criminal justice system uh, is built upon. However, if a person doesn't care about the consequences of their actions, and many people today don't give a rip, if they don't care about the consequences of committing crimes and things like that, then incarceration is useless in keeping criminals at bay and maintaining law and order. Let me just say this as Christians. Obedience to God motivated by love is the higher and more virtuous motivation than is obedience motivated by fear. Now let me say this. If you're not going to obey God out of love, you better obey him out of fear. It's not that fear is a wrong motivation. It's not the highest. Look, when my kids were little, um, I wanted them to obey me because they loved me and they respected me and wanted to please me. But if they weren't going to obey me from that motivation, I'll take obedience by fear. Okay? And, and that's what you have to do sometimes. When we're young in the faith, I think often it's, you know, it's like with my dad. I'll use an example. Um, my dad was a great guy. But I, I was afraid of him. And um, I, I feared him more than I respected him when I was little. Now, it's interesting, when you get bigger and bigger, you get older, they, it, it kind of flips. Now you respect your father or your mom more than you fear them. And so I think when I was young, I feared God more than I really reverenced him. And I obeyed out of fear. Whereas when I, as I got older and got to know him more and closer to him, then I wanted to please him. I didn't want to grieve his heart. I wanted to do what, I wanted, as Jesus said, to always do those things that please the Father. The motivation was now love, not fear. But again, guys, you know, whatever motivates obedience to God is better than disobedience any day of the week. But with regard to verses 10 to 18, author William MacDonald said something that I thought you need to hear. Here's what he said, and I quote. And he's talking about the list now, the 14 indictments, verses 10 to 18. Here we see the total depravity of man, by which we mean that sin has affected all of mankind and that it has affected every part of his being. Obviously, every man has not committed every sin, but he has a nature which is capable of committing them all. If Paul had wanted to give a more complete catalog of sins, he could have mentioned the sins of sex, adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism, perversion, bestiality, prostitution, rape, lewdness, pornography, and smut. He could have mentioned the sins associated with war, destruction of innocence, atrocities, gas chambers, ovens, concentration camps, torture devices, sadism. He could have mentioned sins of the home, unfaithfulness, divorce, wife-beating, mental cruelty, child abuse. Add to these the crimes of murder, mutilation, theft, burglary, embezzlement, vandalism, graft, corruption. Also the sins of speech, profanity, suggestive jokes, sensual language, cursing, blasphemy, lies, backbiting, gossip, character assassination, grumbling, and complaining. 
Other personal sins are drunkenness, drug addiction, pride, envy, covetousness, ingratitude, filthy thought life, hatred, and bitterness. The list is seemingly endless. Pollution, littering, racism, exploitation, deceit, betrayal, broken promises, and on and on it goes. What further proof of human depravity is needed, end quote. And yet, there is no fear of God before many people's eyes. This is amazing that people could be this wicked and still be absolutely clueless to how bad they are. They've gotten so used to sin, it doesn't, their heart has been, or their conscience, I should say, it's been so seared, it's with a hot iron, which is repeated since, that the Holy Spirit cannot prick their conscience anymore. It's insensate, it's insensitive to the touch of the Holy Spirit. And as such, because they don't feel any remorse, any guilt, and because man has a propensity to, to think himself basically good, uh, what is it, Proverbs um, 20, verse 6, pretty much every person uh, proclaims each their own goodness, where everyone's a good person. But this idea that there is no fear of God before their eyes kind of sums up the whole list, kind of summarizes the entire thought. Every sin and rebellion against God happens because people don't have a fear of God in their hearts. Talking about unbelievers now. But guys, it doesn't just apply to unbelievers. It also applies to backslidden Christians. I can always tell where a person is with God by when they sin, and we all sin, how they, how they act when they sin. Do they justify? Do they excuse themselves? Do they blame others? It's amazing to me. I was at a conference years ago, and one of the pastors was speaking. It was a pastor's conference. And he said that he got word that one of the women in his church, not a young gal, not, not that old, you know, but um, one of the women in his church was in an active adultery situation. The guy didn't come to his church, but the, the, the gal did. So he asked to have a meeting with her. She comes to the church, and he sits her down, and he confronts her with this information. You know what she said? Here's what she said. Okay, I'm guilty, but really, what can God do to me? I'm saved. What can God do to you? <laughs> Let me count the ways. <laughs> um, so we see this even in the church. Even we can be self-deceived. Even we can think more highly of ourselves than we should. Paul's going to address that in Romans 12. But guys, listen to me. Total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. But that doesn't make us good either. Some people think because they're not as bad. I've, I've never murdered anybody. Never robbed a bank. Oh, well, praise God. What a wonderful person you are. But you've pretty much done everything else. Total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. But that doesn't make us good. There is none good but God. All right. Let's review briefly. In Romans 1, verse 18, through Romans 3, verse 20, Paul has put the human race on trial. He wants to prove that the whole world apart from Christ is guilty before God, the hedonist, the moralist, and the religionist, everybody. Verse 9. Then in verses 10 to 18, Paul presents his closing arguments in his case for the guilt of mankind. He does so by utilizing a common rabbinic practice known as karaz. 
Karaz. What does that mean? Well, it's a Hebrew word that means to string pearls. To string pearls. Paul, who is a rabbi, strings together God's own words. Pearls of truth. Right out of the Old Testament, which forms this 14-count indictment by God against mankind to prove the evil and depravity in the human heart. And now in verses 19 and 20, Paul moves from the role of a prosecuting attorney, which is what he's been doing, and now steps behind the bench and assumes the role of judge to give the verdict. The verdict, guilty as charged. Now you may be thinking, can he do that? Can he be both prosecuting attorney and judge? How does that work? Well, look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, does the law speak? Literally, does the law speak? Sure, but because God has spoken it. It's, this is God now, okay? We know that whatever God says through the law, it's God. It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Listen, guys, Paul isn't usurping God's role as judge. He's simply acting as a, as a representative of God in his court, repeating the verdict God has already rendered with regard to fallen man. Paul's not pronouncing judgment. He's just repeating what God has already pronounced. Author William MacDonald said, and I quote, When God gave uh, the law to Israel, he was using Israel as a sample of the human race. He found that Israel was a failure, and he correctly applied this finding to all of humanity. It's the same as when a health inspector takes a test tube of water from a well, tests the sample, finds it's polluted, and then pronounces the entire well polluted. So Paul explains that when the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, the people of Israel, in order that every mouth, Jew and Gentile may be stopped and all the world be brought in guilty before God, end quote. But really, Paul's point is that not only are the Jews under the law, but the Gentiles are also under the law. You say, how so? Well, we studied it in chapter 2. Look back to chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 12, where Paul said, for as many... As have sinned without law, he's talking about Gentiles who didn't have the written law of God, written law of Moses. As many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. As many as have sinned in the law, the Jewish people who had the written law of Moses, will be judged by the law. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having, I'll paraphrase, the written law of Moses, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. They know it's right and wrong, otherwise you wouldn't have to excuse yourself or accuse others in place of yourself. The whole idea when people do that, unbelievers they demonstrate they know what's right and wrong. How do they know that? Because God has written his laws in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God, listen, will judge the secrets of men. Hold on to that. The day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Paul's point, everybody is under the law. 
everybody. Whether they have the written law, Israel, or the law that God wrote in their hearts, which is guarded or, or by, the, by their conscience, all people know innately what's right and wrong because God has revealed it to them. And someday they can't plead ignorance on the day of judgment. Well, I didn't know because God is going to reveal the heart. But God knows the heart. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, know the heart. I search the heart. I test the mind. Uh, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. God knows the heart. Hebrews 4.13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. He knows everything. He knows the secrets of the heart. Now, let's read Romans chapter 3, verse 19 again. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. J.B. Phillips, a commentator, said, and I quote, We know what the message of the law is for those who live under it, that every excuse may die on the lips of him who makes it, and no living man may think himself beyond the judgment of God. When people stand before God in the day of judgment, and you know before they die, people are going to well, you know, when I get up to heaven, uh, you know, I'm going to confront God. I'm going to, you know, He's going to answer to me why He did this in my life. I got news for you. When you stand before God as an unbeliever, the Bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God apart from Christ. You're all that bravado that you're expressing now you are going to be terrified as you stand in the presence of a holy, sinless God. And um, if they try to excuse themselves or justify their sins, or I didn't know God, I, I didn't know. I don't know what God's got up in heaven. Maybe the ultimate jumbotron, I don't know. I can just hear him say, Gabriel, roll the tape. You know, boom, there it is on display. Everything that you did and thought and said, what are you going to do? How, how can you make an excuse? It's right there. You're just quiet. You're just silent. God knows. He's got the evidence. Here, here's the problem with those Jews, we'll say, like the scribes, Pharisees, and even Paul before he was saved by grace. Or any religious person, basically, who thinks they can get to heaven by keeping God's law. Think of the Ten Commandments for this illustration. They only look at the law as being outward. They only look at the law as being outward. In other words, they only believe the law pertains to the outward actions of their lives, but are completely ignorant to the fact that the law also pertains to the inward, inward attitudes of a person's heart. That's where they make their fatal mistake. I've never murdered anybody. I've never robbed a bank. So on and so forth, right? I've never committed adultery. This is what the Jews believed. And this is what Paul believed as a rabbi for so many years, a Pharisee. Paul finally came to the realization that the law was not just outward, it was inward. And he talks about that in chapter 7 of the book of Romans. He came to that realization right before he got saved, I assume. 
But he said in Romans 7, 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. So the law is spiritual, guys. In other words, it doesn't just pertain to the physical outward sins a person commits, like murder, stealing, adultery, etc., but also deals with the sins of the heart and the mind. Look, all sin starts in the heart. Before it ever gets carried out in a person's life, and God sees the heart. Well, you know this. Turn to Matthew 5. Jesus said it. You know, some people read the Sermon on the Mount. That's what chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And, and a lot of people read that, and they say, the Sermon on the Mount is a wonderful ethic that we should all live by. You don't even know what Jesus is doing here. He's not giving you a wonderful ethic, quote-unquote, to live by. He's making the life that God demands from a person impossible, apart from Christ. Because here's the deal. The Pharisees, among others, had so dragged God's perfect standard down so low, they thought they were keeping it. Jesus said, no, no, no. Let's elevate it back to where God originally intended it to be. So high, there's no way you could ever attain to it. That's what he's doing here. And he's doing it right here in Matthew 5 by telling these guys, the Pharisees and all, that God's law is not just to govern outward actions, but it also... Is about the inward attitudes of a person's heart. Verse 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, uh, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Verse 27. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, this is what Saul of Tarsus, before he was saved and became Paul, um, he didn't really understand this. In fact, he talks about this. Where he said, I thought I was keeping the law. All these outward, thou shalt not commit adultery, murder, steal. Oh, yeah, I'd never done any of that. But the 10th one got me. You shall not covet. And I realized that was not an outward commandment. That was inward. That coveting is of the heart. And when Paul said, when I realized that the law was not just given to govern outward actions, but it also dealt with inward attitudes, I was done. Because I had done all those things in my heart. I hated. I had lusted. I had done all those things. And I realized I was guilty before God. Romans 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Can I paraphrase? Therefore, by the works of religion, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You've probably heard this illustration before. Can I just quote you, though, one of my favorite Bible teachers, Donald Gray Barnhouse? I like the way he put this. He said, and I quote, The law of God is like a mirror. Now, the purpose of a mirror is to reveal to you that your face is dirty. But the purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. When you look in a mirror and find that your face is dirty, do you then reach, reach out to take the mirror off the wall and attempt to rub it on your face as a cleansing agent? The purpose of the mirror is to drive you to the water. 
Any other use of the mirror is plain folly, end quote. Guys, the law is good when it's used properly. What do I mean? When it's used the way God intended it to be used, to produce conviction of sin, to bring somebody to Christ, but it's absolutely worthless as a savior or a cleanser from sin. In fact, it's not just worthless, it's dangerous. Because now you're looking to something that God intended for you to, to read and to look at that would condemn you like a mirror. You look into the law, wow, I haven't kept any of this stuff. I'm guilty. I'm going to hell. What, is there any hope? Yeah, Jesus, I'm the way. Come to me. But there's a lot of folks who don't understand that. They embrace the law because they think it's going to make them righteous. Quickly turn to 1 Timothy 1. We'll bring this to a close. But 1 Timothy chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 8. Paul says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. What is Paul saying? He's saying, look, once a person is saved by Jesus Christ, they don't need written laws anymore. Why? Because they have Jesus in their heart. And they, want, they have a new nature. They want to please the Lord. They want to do what's right. All right? But, if a, but a, unbelievers, the law was given, the law of God, but we see it in society, different laws. What, what were they intended to do? To restrain the evil in man so that we could all live in somewhat peace. That's changing because laws have been tossed out. Consequences have been tossed out. You commit a violent crime, you're out in a couple hours now. People aren't held accountable because the sentence upon an evil deed is not carried out swiftly. Therefore, the sons, hearts of the sons of men are bent on doing evil continually. Solomon said that. But the law was given for unrighteous people to keep in check their fallen natures. Because you break the law, there's consequences. If you don't want consequences, you, you stay in line. You mean it love to obey the law or you fear the consequences if there's no consequences there's no fear man's fallen nature is unbridled it's unbridled and running amok we're seeing it today but once you get saved the law is not for a righteous person because when jesus lives in your heart you don't need external laws to do what's right you want to do what's right from the heart very quickly galatians 3 as we bring this to a close Galatians 3, verse 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor. Why did God give the law? He never gave it at any time in the past that people might keep it and be righteous. That never was God's intention. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, after you're saved, we no longer are under a tutor. The law is no longer, it, it doesn't apply anymore in our lives. There are those Christians who believe we're still under the law. That's sad. That's tragic. The law has a purpose. Use it lawfully. Use it the way God intended it. it it's, it's to bring, bring conviction that you're a sinner. You'll never be able to keep these laws. It's 
the, the law of God is holy, righteous, and good. Paul says in, what, Romans 7, verse 12, I think. The problem was never with the law. Uh, it's, it was always God's perfect, righteous standard. The problem was we couldn't keep it through our fallen nature and so on. So once the law then shows us our sin and drives us to Christ for salvation, the law has fulfilled its purpose. And we, we, you know, we move on. We just now draw close to Jesus every day, right? But one author put it well. He said, and I quote, No one can be justified by keeping the law. The law was not given to justify people, but to produce the knowledge of sin. Not the knowledge of salvation, but the knowledge of sin. Martin Luther said, The law's function is not to justify, it's to terrify. There are many people who believe that all they need is a little religion. Just a little bit. You know, little law, few commandments. They think that if they, you know, keep a couple of the big ones, then all the little ones, lust and lying, what's only white lies, you know, all the other things. As long as they don't murder anybody, you know, commit adultery, rob a bank, you know. Um, that's all I need to, to be saved and go to heaven. They don't understand. And I think we'll leave it here. I'll just throw this out because, I mean, we'll pick it up next time. But they don't understand. If you're going to try to be righteous... By keeping the law, you're going to have to keep all of it perfectly. You cannot mix law and grace. You cannot say, well, I'm saved by grace, but I need to be good still, so I'll mix a little law in there. No, it doesn't work that way. It's either one or the other. I'll leave it there. We're out of time. But um, come back next week as we then now move officially into the new section. We'll revisit this briefly next time. But um, you understand what, what Paul's doing. He's bringing the whole world to a place where their heads are bowed. They're ashamed. They're broken. They're convicted. They're not praising themselves any longer. They realize now they're, they're, they're lost, fallen, guilty sinners. That was necessary to then give them the good news, how much God loves sinners. Jesus died for sinners and so on. So we'll pick it up next week, God willing, as we continue. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is our way, the only way that we might be saved, that we could never keep religion, laws for righteousness. You never intended the law to be kept for righteousness. The law was always intended to show us our sinfulness. Thank you, Lord. We just pray that you will continue to bless these studies in your word in this incredible book, we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.